0: Welcome to Cabbages and Kings. I'm your host, Jonah Sutton Morse. After some gentle prodding from John, I realized it's been a while since the last episode, so here is the second half of my conversation with Justina Ireland and me thinking a bit about genre. This has been prompted by noticing I've been reading a lot more science fiction recently, and for all that I identify as a science fiction fantasy reader, I'm really mostly a fantasy person. I just haven't read all that much science fiction. I've bounced around a lot rather than really settling into the genre enough to feel like I understand it, But this year I'm going to read the shortlist for the Clark Awards, which honors the best science fiction novel first published in the United Kingdom in the last year, so everything first published in 2015. By a strained quirk of eligibility rules, this means that Becky Chambers' A Long Way to a Small Angry Planet, which was first self-published as a Kickstarter project and nominated for Best Debut Novel in 2014 for The Kitchies, which is another UK-based genre award, it's now on the shortlist for the 2016 Clark Awards, which again honor the best books first published in 2015. We live in strange, interesting, and dare I say science fictional times. I'm kind of breaking a rule here, because when I started Cabbages and Kings, I promised myself that the one topic that would be off-limit would be awards stuff. I wanted to talk about books, not the endless conversations that swirl around science fiction and fantasy awards and communities. That little note about Long Way to a Small Angry Planet, which I've read and enjoyed, is as close to award-neepery as I plan to get, I promise. I am going to have Maureen K. Speller back to talk about the Clark Award shortlist, along with Megan of the blog From Couch to Moon. We're going to read the six books shortlisted for the Clark Award this year and talk about them, hopefully before the award is presented in August. And we'll probably talk about whether and how these represent the science fiction field, in the UK at least, as it stands, and maybe even what science fiction is. I think there is some value in awards that can provoke discussion and consideration of books, after all. I'll have a link to the short list in the show notes, but the books in no particular order are A Long Way to a Small Angry Planet by Becky Chambers, Nettie Okorafor's The Book of Phoenix, Ian Pears' Arcadia, Europe at Midnight by Dave Hutchinson, which I dearly hope can be read without first reading Europe in Autumn, Way Down Dark by J.P. Smythe, which is a little tough to get in the U.S., so if you want to read along, go find this soon, And Children of Time by Adrian Tchaikovsky, who's been on my to-try list for a while, so that's a plus. So, uh, discussion to come. Thinking about the award and my general uptick in reading science fiction recently has made me wonder a bit about what even is science fiction anyway. I think drawing genre definitions is usually a fool's game, and I don't plan to hold all of these books to this particular standard. But I do actually have a pretty clear idea of what I hope for when I settle in to read a science fiction novel. I'm looking for a moment of clarity that either unsettles my understanding of how the world works or makes concrete a vague notion I have about how the world works and how that constant would look different in an entirely different setting. A few examples, the first from Larry Niven's Ringworld. When the characters are first learning about the Ringworld, Niven explains for them with an evocative passage that starts with a candle and a thin strand of thread wrapped around it. The candle grows to the size of a sun, the thread to the Ringworld itself, and, at least for me, suddenly the immensity of space, the engineering required to create a project like the Ringworld, and the size of the area to be explored all snapped into focus. This is still a moment I remember when I'm thinking about scale and how changing scale can entirely redefine a problem or the world. The second example comes from another older science fiction novel, How Clement's Heavy Planet. Here, Clement imagines a very dense elliptical planet with much higher gravity than ours. The inhabitants explore the planet as a way to describe what such an environment could be like and how, again, our perspective would be fundamentally changed. The notion of a fall of a body length, even for creatures measured in inches and adapted to such gravity, is instantly lethal, for instance. There changed ways of interacting with the world because of this. Clement wrote an essay where he suggests basically this kind of science fiction, which I think of as thought experiment sci-fi, is a game between the author and the reader. Can the author construct a world sufficiently rigorous that the reader cannot find an inconsistency? Can the reader anticipate future developments that the author will introduce? I'll note that many of these books have holes big enough to drive a truck through when other sciences like sociology or anthropology are brought to bear. An easy and accurate complaint is that many of the stories were not only sexist, but privileged physics and chemistry above other sciences based on some pretty sexist notions but I still enjoy these sorts of thought experiments which take the laws of nature as best we understand them and apply them to an entirely different environment. C.J. Sherry's Foreigner has a similar moment of recognition for me, but this one isn't related to physical laws at all. In Foreigner, a small community of humans live on a planet dominated by the alien Atevi, whose physiology, community, and emotional connections to each other are built in part around systems of allegiance. That is, recognizing someone's authority over an area or over yourself has physiological effects, kind of like romantic love in humans. There's this crucial moment in the first book where the human character is feeling human emotions, and the alien reminds him that while her behaviors may look superficially like human reciprocity, her feelings are more closely akin to the aesthetic pleasures of eating a good meal. I hope I'm not mangling the scene too badly since I last read it in high school, but much like Heavy Planet gave me the sense that gravity in a planet with wildly different mass would produce a wildly different environment, Foreigner was a moment of recognition that our behaviors and feelings and the ways that we interpret the behaviors and feelings of others are a complicated interaction of social conditioning and physiology, and they're not nearly as universal as we might think. I could probably go on. There's a delightful moment in Steerswoman, where a character reasons out low-Earth orbit satellites from first principles. And even though many of Ken Liu's short stories aren't necessarily science fiction, most have a moment of unexpected recognition within them. The point, though, is that when I think of science fiction, what I think of are those moments of recognition. Moments remind me that there are real universal realities that our Earth and society are just a very fragile, specific manifestation of, and things we might assume are universally applicable are highly contingent on the specific events and environment that have led us here. I really like those moments of recognition. I don't think that they're necessarily useful in defining the boundaries of the genre, and I don't expect all the books in the Clark shortlist to be catering to that expectation, but it is something that I bring to the table when I think about science fiction. Now, on to the interview. This is the second half of my discussion with Justina Ireland on diversity and inclusion in the genre. Last time we talked about representation in fiction, the importance, especially for readers from a marginalized background, of seeing themselves represented well on the page. This time we're going to talk a bit more about reviews and reception. I feel like I've heard two different sort of positive statements about diversity and inclusion. One, that there are familiar I don't know that tropes is quite the right word, but familiar roles and stories that have been told where there's still a lot of value to retelling those stories with historically marginalized identities at the center of those stories and giving the black woman the chance to be the romantic lead. And probably and and I don't know a whole lot about disability and neurodiversity, but I am sure that being able to retell stories with neurodiverse or disabled leads that, that there are a plethora of stories out there that would oh, give yeah, a, definitely. a whole lot of people a chance to see themselves in a role they've never seen themselves in. I remember that being one of the big things about Mad Max. Yes. And I feel like there's also being able to experiment and explore and kind of get rid of some of the assumptions that we've always made opens up lots of new possibility. We're just, there's all sorts of stuff out there that because we've been writing the same sorts of books and and... If we can get more creators in there and and people willing to take more risks and explore their the, the boundaries of their imagination even more, there's there's a whole host of stories well outside of things that that may not put focus on identities that haven't been on the page very much, but will give all of us sort of a chance to to see commonalities and see differences in ways that that we haven't before, which is. I think, kind of one of the things that people say about having aliens in science fiction. And that's also a very untapped field and area.
1: So I think classic stories, I think familiar stories are a good entry point for people who necess- wouldn't necessarily pick up a book with a, a marginalized main character. So I, you know, I think there, I think there are people who you know are resistant to pick up a book with, you know, with a neurodiverse lead, or they're resistant to pick up a book with a disabled lead because they're like, oh, it's a hassle. It's it's going to be a book. It's going to be deep. I just want a light hearted fun read. That's what you hear a lot of times when people are like kind of pushing back against diversity, right? Oh, I just want to read something light and fun. I don't want any, all that seriousness stuff. And I think like when you take it like, you know, something like Snow White or Cinderella or like any kind of classical story or like, you know, Romeo and Juliet, these stories that we know, it's kind of, I always call it the medicine in the hot dog. I have a dog. So mm-hmm. whenever I have to give him medicine, I I shove the medicine inside of the hot dog because what happens is he wolfs down the whole thing and he doesn't even get realize he got the medicine until afterwards. Right. I think when you do that, when you take a familiar story and you, you know, either race bend it or you, you know, gender bend it or you do something that, you know, kind of shifts that narrative enough. People something familiar with the medicine that they need and the medicine they need is they the, the diversity. Like they you need to see people besides yourself in stories, you know, just, mm-hmm. as, just as people need to see themselves in stories. It, it behooves you as a human being to see people be, besides yourself so that you can be a better human being and build some of that empathy. And there's actually a study that they, that was done, you know, where if you, you know, read books and you know, there are re- situations, yeah, yeah, right. It like, increases your cognitive ability to deal with situations and like you're more willing to embrace differences in real life and stuff like that. So, like, I think that's what's really important. But I also think there are only so many stories that are going to be told, like, like ancillary justice. If you look. The story it is nothing really new like you know there are a million you know swashbuckling revenge space stories out there right what made it different was the way that lucky used gender rachel bach who just wrote the fortune's pawn books mm-hmm. it's just basically a mercenary in space but because the main character happens to be a female mercenary all of a sudden, it's something new and fantastic and fresh. And it's those are it's actually an awesome trilogy. I loved it. So, like, I think it's really important to, like, think of, like, there really are no new plots. Like, they always, you always, you are you know, everyone's had that English teacher who's like, right. all the stories are always told, we're all told by Shakespeare. Yep. And that's true to to a degree. But the difference is the characters. You know, I will go to hell and back with an interesting character in a shitty plot. Mm-hmm. But I'm not going step two with a plot that's formulaic and bland characters. Like, I don't care how complex your plot is. If your main characters, if your characters are flat, you're, no one's going anywhere with you. Um And I think you can do that. I mean, like, I think just, like, just writing different characters, like, giving people something they haven't seen before in a familiar plot. It's like training wheels for diversity. It's like people are going to read it um, just because they know the story. Like, people love the um kidnapped princess or... Mis- mistaken identity stories you know there's a million stories of mistaken identity and fantasy right but if you you know if you put in you know two princesses who fall in love instead of a princess and a boy or if you put in you know a disabled princess or a neurodiverse princess like all of a sudden the story is different and the and the obstacles are different
0: Of course, even when authors do choose to write stories with characters from marginalized backgrounds who speak and act and live in their own communities and not Federation starships or pseudo-medieval Europe that so many stories are set in, their books are reviewed and discussed by a community that may or may not be familiar with those backgrounds. I'm going to link to an annual survey by the genre magazine Strange Horizons, which looks at the gender and racial backgrounds of reviewers at many genre outlets, as well as the books they review. Certainly there are authors and editors out there taking risks and telling stories from their own perspectives. More than once on this podcast, I've mentioned the anthology Long Hidden, Speculative Fiction from the Margins of History.
1: My biggest pet peeve when people do make those daring choices, right? When they do try something different, is the reviews you, you read that the the pushback you see in these these reviewers. We saw it with the long hidden anthology where someone yeah. was like, "Well, it was so it was all good except for this one story written in vernacular, you know, AAVE, and it's like
0: the literary you, trick,
2: I believe, was right. The phrase.
1: Yes, yes, it was. And I'm like, that's not a literary trick. Just because you've never been somewhere where people speak that way uh-huh. doesn't mean it's like a literary trick. Or um, when Karen Lord's The Best of All Possible Worlds came out, you know, there was, uh, I think it was a Strange Horizons review that, you know, was talking about like, well, I liked it, but it wasn't very feminist because the main character falls in love um, with one of the other characters. And they're like, well, it wasn't feminist because she fell in love. But the idea of a woman of color being able to be in love, to be the love interest and to be cherished by somebody, that is pretty feminist for women of color, right? Mm-hmm. You know, women of color have, have been property f- for most of for most of American history. You know, they've they've been, you know, something to, for people to use. So to the idea that a woman of color can be cherished and loved and, and be a love interest, that's revolutionary, you know, to, to think that you're deserving of that same kind of tenderness that, you know, white women would necess- would take for granted. I um, mean, you know, when was the last time you saw a romantic comedy with a woman of color that was the lead? You
2: know, mm-hmm. that wasn't,
1: you know, a, a quote-unquote black movie. Right. So, like, you know, the Taylor Perry wasn't involved. That's kind of like the point, like, you know, just because it's not revolutionary for you doesn't mean it isn't revolutionary for me. And I think that's, that's one of the things that, you know, reviewers are terrible at is taking themselves out of their little narrow headspace of experience and saying, Okay, how would other audiences receive this piece? And how do I review this in the broadest possible terms? Because I don't think if you're a reviewer and you only read you know, you would never have a reviewer who's only like, I only read military sci-fi set on a generational spaceship, right? You would right. never have a reviewer that's that narrow. Yet we do have reviewers who are like, I will only give a good rating to something that's very, you know, white, male, heterosexual, and plays into that sci-fi fantasy. And they may well be doing that
0: not necessarily consciously, like not saying Correct. to themselves, I'm only, you know, but just we, and i I've certainly including myself in this one, are used to reading things with a certain audience in mind. And right. so when things are written not towards that audience, it is, I think, easy for a reviewer to miss that and to not not be aware of the the significance of, of the ways that that's been changed.
1: As a reviewer, you should, So for for one of the things I do now when I read, because I'm trying to to read, I'm trying to question myself, because obviously I have a lot of internalized bias, even against people of color, right? That's one of the things about living in society is... Even as a person of color, you start to internalize those those biases. So one of the things I do when I read things, if I, when I have a negative reaction to something in the text, I try to stop myself and think, why am I having a negative reaction? Is it because I find it truly offensive? Or is it because it goes against something I've been taught? You know, mm-hmm. you see that a lot with promiscuous women on the page, right? You, know, you automatically get that, uh, why is she you no, know, why is she such a whore? It's like, whoa, wait, like, why am I thinking those thoughts when there's nothing wrong with, you know, if it was a dude, I would be like, yeah, go get it. So, like, that's one of those things that you have to kind of question with yourself. And I worry if anybody who attempts to be a critic isn't always questioning their tastes and their bi- internalized bias. Because if you're a critic, you should. that should be part of your mantra, you know, looking at a piece of work and looking at it critically, you know, looking at the subtext, looking at how people would receive it and looking how you received it. And what that says about you as well as what it says about the work. And I don't think – I think there's a lot of folks who, that aren't willing to to look beyond, you know, the end of their nose when they read a book. You know, if it's not something that's that completely speaks to their experience, obviously it's crap. And it doesn't mean it's not crap if, you know, if it doesn't speak to your experience. But I do think we need to do better at thinking, like, how does this play into the larger canon? Like, how does this – you know, what does this say about the larger world around us? How does this fit in the this, in this space? And, you know, does it have merit even if it's not something I'd like? There's a lot of stuff I read. Like, I'm not a big fan of of literature, you know, capital (laughs) L. I'm not a big fan of, like, the Franzens and the um all those, like, deep literary meaning kind of books where, like, middle-aged white dude tries to have sex with someone he shouldn't have sex with. Like, that's not my deal. But I understand why people do like it. And I understand why people think, you know, that's a worthwhile, you know, bit of literature, why it's a, a reading.
0: You're a better person than I am. <laughs> 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 I, I will try to figure that out sometime later, I I'm think.
1: Just, I'm, I'm pretty, I think it's the pretty sentences. Like, they're really, like, sometimes you read those books at a sense level, and they're, they're just, you know, it's just really an interesting way of arranging words. And then sometimes you're just like... I- <laughs> yeah, but at the same time, I understand why people like it. You know, it's not my thing, but I can I can critique something and say this doesn't appeal to me. But these are the people it would appeal to. And I think that's something that that reviewers especially should do a little bit better job of. Is you know, like I'm not you know I don't expect everyone to give good reviews, but I do think especially when it's something that you're like this was clearly not written for me. There's, there was clearly a subtext here I missed. That doesn't mean it's a bad book because you missed the subtext. It means you missed the subtext.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Those are two different things.
0: I remember you tweeting, and half of the reason that I had you on this podcast was because I wanted to ask you about a couple of, to expand on a couple of (laughs) your tweets. I remember you tweeting at one point something like, if prejudice is shown on the page, it should be deconstructed on the page. And I think that in that you were talking specifically about some historical, books with historical settings. But I feel like it it applies in many ways both to secondary world or far off science fiction as well as historical settings. Are there Things that you've that you've noticed that kind of say to you, I'm, I'm getting worried about how the author is going to handle this, or I really like how the author is handling this and is able to both portray prejudice but also kind of deconstruct and show what the the problems are with that worldview.
1: So, yes, yeah, so like one of the things we see I see a lot in books is when you have the good white person or the white savior character. You know, the main character who doesn't necessarily know anything about this world. You know, we see it a lot with conquerors, the dances with wolves syndrome or the, you know, the last samurai syndrome where like this white dude shows up in this like foreign culture. And it could be an alien culture. It could be elves or, you know, orcs or whatever the hell you want to put in there. Because it's usually not people of color. It's usually some other kind of fantastical stand in. And they show up, and you know they learn a valuable lesson because they do all these things that are wrong. And you know, there's this kind person they usually fall in love with. It's usually a like very you know stereotypical like Native American woman kind of character. But you know, just think, what was the movie? The blue with the blue people that Avatar, um, right? Thank you. Yeah,
0: right. I was I was just thinking about that. I was thinking, wait a minute, are you just giving me the plot synopsis of Avatar right <laughs> here?
1: I actually didn't watch that movie because I've seen Dances with Wolves when I was younger. So I'd never seen that movie. That's basically right. Avatar is basically Dances with Wolves with blue people. I I didn't see Dances with Wolves, but that sounds right. Uh, Yeah. So like what happens is you have this character and it happens in in fiction all the time. It happens when you're on the page as well. You know, they show up, they're doing everything wrong and they're just terrible. And you're like, you know, like, oh my gosh, you know, how can these people be so mean to them? And then you get to the end of the book and you're like, oh, we all learned a valuable lesson. To be more, you know, accepting and then, you know, usually some like kind of magical Negro fatherly figure or motherly figure is dying 10 pages from the end of the book so that the main character can learn this very valuable lesson from the aliens or orcs or elves or whoever they're learning these lessons from. Mm -hmm. You know, we all leave the page and we're like, oh, it was a great book. But if you're the the person who's the stand-in, like if you're the, the orcs or the elves, you're like, that guy was kind of a dick like, yeah. like you know like you know, the whole day hold the whole book and that's what has to happen if your main character is like doing all all these things throughout the book there needs to be something right after they they do it like where you deconstruct why they're doing these things that are wrong because for me i already know he's doing things that are wrong like i don't need to wait till the end of the book to re- learn the valuable lesson because I know racism is real, right? Like, I know, like, homophobia is real. I don't need to go 20 chapters to get to that point. So, Mm -hmm. like, that's part of writing for an inclusive audience. Like, you know, if you're writing for the audience, you're like, hey, you know, I'm writing about, you know, (laughs) I'm writing about blue people being marginalized. Maybe some of my readers have been marginalized. Maybe they know what that's like. You know, maybe I should address that on the page right after it happens you know, you don't have to have the main character realize it because that's part of craft, but your characters who are around the main character should say something about it and should have some reaction to it. And what happens nine times out of ten is that main character who are so deep in their point of view or were so deep in their perspective, there's nothing else within the story to tell the reader this was a bad thing. And it isn't until we get to the end and we all learn the valuable lesson that we were like, "Oh, that thing that happened on page two—that was a bad thing." But if I'm the person who's already experienced that and didn't need to learn that lesson, I'm not seeing—I'm not hanging around with you until page two hundred, <laughs> right. right? Like I'm built on page two because I'm like, I know where this is going. I've seen this story before. So that's one of the things that I think, like, when you're—if you're writing, you know, with a marginal, especially if you're writing from a marginalized perspective. So if you're in a marginalized character's point of view, the marginalized character is not going to say oh, maybe these people are racist. They're going to say, oh, hell, these people are racist and I'm just going to try to get through this day the best I can. Mm -hmm. A lot of times, uh, this is one uh, thing, the whole idea of authenticity is like you'll have the big moment, right? You'll have the big moment where the marginalized character is realizing they're marginalized instead of understanding that being part of being marginalized is like a hundred little moments. It's not a big thing, right? Like, you know, there's, it's, you know, it's very rare that, I go walk down the street and someone says, you know, calls me the N-word. It, you know, it happens, but it's very rare. Mm-hmm. But it's a lot of little things where people are like, oh, can I touch your hair? Or where people are like, oh, you know, let me hold your bags while you lock, walk around the store. Like, you know, and nobody else's bags are being offered to be held. or right. Or like, you know, people following you and offering to help you and they're a little bit too helpful, that kind of stuff. Like it's it's not like a it's not big things, it's a hundred thousand little things that add up to be big things. I think that's one of the things that like makes me crazy is like when you don't address it on the page, when you just have all this stuff is happening and we're supposed to just know it's because this character is gonna learn a valuable lesson, but I don't wanna wait for them to learn a valuable lesson. And part of that's what we call the promise of the story. If you don't kind of give your reader the you know, it's the same thing. This is one of the reasons I don't read George R. R. Martin anymore, for example, because there's, there's no guarantee that he's going to treat me as a reader well, right? Like, you know, if once mm-hmm. you get through like book three, you know, he's killed the person you love the most. And it's like, do you really want to set yourself up for that kind of abuse anymore? Like, like, how good is the story? Like, everyone you love is going to die. It's like, I'm, I'm good. I don't need that. <laughs> and that's part of like which well, when you have the promise of the story, it's, it's, it's that kind of giving the reader like, Hey, look, it sucks right now, but I'm going to pull you through it and I'm going to make it worth your while. And if you can't do that for people from marginalized backgrounds, just as well as you would do that for mainstream readers, that's when you have a problem. And that's when you're not looking at your microaggressions and all that's the crap that's going on your page and deconstructing it.
0: Thinking back to quarter fives and remembering the kind of throughout that the daughters are very aware that their situation is precarious. Right. And I feel like early on there was the scene in the market and the spiders came through and rounded up a bunch of people and it was kind of dangerous but it was much less dangerous for her because the thing was it was going to like embarrass her father. Right. But then one of the characters who got rounded up, he showed up later and, and there was a chance to reveal that the official explanation for what was going on was not kind of the actual reason for the repression that was happening. And I, f- I feel like there were, core Fives did representation really well. And, and in part, I felt like making the reader aware that the narrator, or that the protagonist was privileged and that she came to that realization, but she, she came to that realization gradually, partly because like, I guess she, it took her a while to go from realizing like I am privileged to what does privilege actually mean? Like, I think it is easy for me to acknowledge I have white privilege and I have male privilege, but it is harder for me to describe what does it mean to have those things. And, and I felt like there was a kind of similar journey of discovery in Court of Fives.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, I think it's, she does a great job in that. So, so, so I think it's a great job in that marketplace scene, right? Because so, you know, you have the spiders are coming in because they're looking for this playwright, poet. And so, you know, her and her sister are just like shopping and they're kind of oblivious to all this stuff. You know, she doesn't understand why the people in the marketplace don't like her. Like, she knows that she's privileged because, you know, her dad is, you know, this patron and he, um, you know, is taking care of her mother very well. But it's not until, like, the small child is crushed by the spider and the soldiers are, like, kind of just don't even notice that they've just, like, crushed this small child. That She's mm-hmm. like, holy crap, like, what's going on here? She thinks, oh, it's okay, the spiders are here to help, whereas the people in the marketplace, the reactions are very different. So right. like, I think Kate does a great job of showing, like, this is what it looks like to not understand what oppression looks like. Because, you know, even though she knows, hey, it's not, you know, it's not really fair, I'm not going to ever, you know, get to be a patron or have those kinds of opportunities, she still doesn't understand the true depth of what is going on in the country, Um, the main character, um, Jess. I was actually lucky enough to read Kate's, um draft for a second book and it goes deeper. Like there's a lot of more of that like awaken, awakening where she realizes like what it means for her identity to be in between these two worlds. And, and the second book's actually, I love the first book, but trilogies usually fall apart for me in the second book. Like usually uh-huh. I, I always hate that metal, but that bridge it's just like, what are you doing with this bridge book? Just give us the third book. Because usually um, Chilogy, the second book in a trilogy is usually very weak. But this is a great, I mean, her, the second book is amazing. I mean, it's even better than the first book. And, you know, there's a lot of growth that happens with the character. And there's a lot of that, more of that realization of like, you know, what does it mean to be a conquered people? What does it mean to, you know, to have to give up your identity when somebody new comes into, you know, and onto the scene? how much of history that we're told is true and how much is rewritten by the conquerors. And there's all these kinds of questions. But I think that marketplace scene is like for, for authors or for writers who want to understand what it's like to write microaggressions on the page and dismantle them and not in like an obvious way, right? Like there's the obvious way to dismantle it. It's like, how dare you call that person, that thing. That's a not a nice thing to call that person, but it's a very obvious dismantling of a, of a microaggression or of a, you know, a belief. But there's also the more nuanced where where you just have the crowd reacting maybe differently than the, than your main character and you show that and you you know your main character's like why is everyone reacting differently and they just kind of start to observe this stuff. So yeah, like I courtifies this I mean it's such a great book and it's such a good example of how you can do diversity within fantasy without, you know, hitting someone over the head with the diversity.
0: Each episode closes with the memory of a significant book. This episode, we are going to close with a favorite book from Paul Weimer when he came on to talk about Kate Elliott and Roger
2: Zelazny. The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings. Go on. Okay, so now catch your mind, catch your mind back to back to uh, 1980, and I found, and this is when I'm discovering fantasy fiction and all that, and my brother and I discovered that this week, that the coming weekend, they were going to have the animated Hobbit and the two animated Lord of the Rings movies on television that weekend.
0: Yes, yes. I've definitely shown my four-year-old the animated Hobbit. It
2: is awesome. And he thought, I should read the books before seeing that. So in about four and a half days, (laughs) I read the entire Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings to be prepared for this. Uh Uh-huh. Because I felt and he felt that I should read it before I actually see it. Of course. So it was with great anxiety and interest that I, I dove into these books, ripped through them, and so I could watch them. Now I was rather surprised at the changes in the animated versions. There are. It's like, wait
0: of, a minute! A couple anyway. of slight differences. Now I seem to remember the animated Lord of the Rings doesn't end at the end, but maybe that's because I only saw the first
2: movie. Right, you only saw the first one. Which okay. kind of stops a part and a half, and then the and then the second one doesn't even quite match up with that and that's the one with the infamous song
0: i don't actually know this i'll have to look it up
2: where there's a whip there's a way oh yes that's what yeah that comes from the second animated lord of the rings movie Uh uh-huh and also has the weird strange strange thing that hobbits are turning into humans and i thought wait what this is not in the book i went back (laughs) so looking through i saw looking at the nope 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 this is not in the book not I, canon. I not canon. It's like it was my. It was what it was my first real example of how you could take a book and warp and edit it for an adaptation because it was really. I think about it, really the first adaptation I've seen of mm-hmm. a book I had just re- I had read. So so I got to read the Lord of the Rings and I still have the edition because I bought this. It was this, 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 this little slip case that has has the Hobbit and the and three Lord of the Rings. Books, I still have that. I mean, it's got to be 20 years old at this point. More than 20 years old at this point. I still have it. I've been carrying it around with me over across the entire mm-hmm. country. So
0: my my first edition was the one with the oval covers, where the two towers is Gimli and Legolas, and all of their hair. Oh God, yeah. I'm a, I'm a little disappointed that I'm on like my fourth edition of The Lordlings now, and no longer have that one because there was something a little bit special about that one. Wow, yeah. Thanks for listening to Cabbages and Kings. Please let me know what you think of the show. On the website, cabbagesandkings.audio, there's a feedback form and also a page if you'd like to be on the show. Or just go ahead and email contact at cabbagesandkings.audio. I'm on Twitter at jay Morse. The show is on Twitter at kingcabbagecast. Let me know what you enjoyed, what books you're reaching for now, what I can do to make the show better. The website also has an occasional blog, my running tweets on books I'm reading, and importantly, a link to the RSS feed for this show, which you can also find on iTunes and wherever fine podcasts are aggregated. Until next time, enjoy your reading.